good. Love them. All right. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. All right. We're going to be, we're going to go and just jump in is what we're going to do. Good. So we are in a series called Redeeming Our Rule. And I'll begin here. Um, The journey of identity is a search for this question, who am I? It's this uh, search for this question, why am I here? This search for this question, what is my purpose or um, what is my place in this world? And that question, these questions go back generations, generations upon generations. I mean, look at, consider maybe um, a, something you read maybe in middle school, Dante's Inferno. Anybody? Middle school, Dante's Inferno. Good, good. Anybody not read it but wrote a paper on it or something like that? Um, that's fine. Well, Dante, part of his role, part of his desire was to go to hell and back for, uh, with a search for identity. Back in the fourth, 14th century, this desire, this search for identity. What's interesting about this, this book called Dante's Inferno, what's unique about it is that Dante remains nameless pretty much throughout the whole book when you read it, and it's designed to represent humanity's search for identity, that Dante is an example of how we all are searching for identity in a variety of ways, asking questions like, what is our place in this world? And this morning, I want to consider that question, this question around identity. Again, we're in a series called Redeeming Our Rule. We started it last Sunday, and we started it by considering this job description that we all have. We're called to this cultural mandate. We're called to this design, this desire, this place of cultivating and keeping and making this world better. That in the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2, there was a garden. And at the end of the Bible, we see this great, magnificent city. And it's this picture along the way that humanity is designed to build up and develop and cultivate this world. And we are called to that, all of us uniquely in this space as human beings. And so each of us have a special part to play. And I want to just specifically just earmark this for you, that if you happen to be retired or of the age where you're thinking about being retired, I want to say that you also have an important place to play in this world, that it doesn't end when you end uh, maybe your vocational life. And so I'm going to actually land with you in mind. So when we get to the end of this time, be ready, because I'm, I'm talking to you in particular. But, uh, but this morning, I want to consider this phrase, uh, that we're called to rule by embracing our calling, to rule by embracing our calling. So uh, discovering our true God-given identity, discovering our true God-given calling is central to following Jesus. It's imperative that as we grow as disciples of Jesus, that we would actually learn what it looks like to consider who we are and who God has called us to be, that who has God formed you to be? How has your life, your tragedies, your gifts, your journey led you to understand who God has called you to be? These are sacred questions I want us to consider. So I have a couple points for us. This first is this. There are three tiers to understanding our God-given identity. Three tiers. Um, The first tier is um, that we are all humans. Each of us uniquely are all humans. So we, I'm not gonna spend much time here, but wanted to just uh, mention it briefly, that we are all made in the image of God. Our job title, all of us, is that we are made in the image of God. We are unique to every other 
species, every other created thing. Um, We're equal in dignity. We're equal in value. We're equal in respect. We all have uh, emotions, and we have intellect, and we have uh, a spirituality that we are all wired uniquely as image bearers. We're distinct to the rest of creation. So the biblical precedent is that we would care for one another. That it, because we're all made in the image of God, we're called to care for one another, which is why uh, this phrase, uh, the quartet of the vulnerable, is really important. That there are four groups of people, the poor, the orphan, the widow, the refugee, that oftentimes are marginalized, and we're called to care for one another. That's the biblical precedent that we have been given. So we first are human. Second, we have a general identity, a general identity. And we actually picked this up. Virginia mentioned it a little bit ago, but in John 3.16, I'm going to read 3.16 through 3.18. Oftentimes we end on John 3.16. So she uh, hit the first half of 3.16. I'll hit the second and then go a little further. It says, for God, yes, he so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, but he, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so this general identity is twofold. Either you are a child of God, or you are not a child of God, and you're a child of wrath. A general identity that we all have, we're either a child of God or a child of wrath. So child of God. Not everyone is a child of God. This is a provision that God has given to all who accept it humbly. God has provided a provision to any and all. This is the cornerstone to the story of God. As you read through the scripture, old and new, you see that God over and over again provides provisions. So for example, with Abraham. We see the story in Abraham, uh, Abraham's life where he finally gets the son that he longed for. His son's name was Isaac. And he uh, and Isaac went on a journey and he was told by God to sacrifice Isaac, this wild moment. And he goes obediently. I can't imagine the moment that he's in. And, and right before the act of sacrifice, a ram is caught in a thicket. A provision of God was given as a shadow of the coming Christ. And the, the ram was the one who received, was the sacrifice in that moment. You fast forward to the Passover, this famous uh, moment in Israel's history where um, the 10th plague is given and the firstborn son is, is going, to, uh, going to die. But God provides a provision that anyone who kills a lamb and the blood of that lamb is put over the doorpost They are freed from that moment. God provides a provision that anyone who trusts in this provision will be freed from death. Over and over and over again, we see this reminder that humanity must submit to God's provisions that he gives to us. All pointing to the fact that he so loved the world that he gave his son as a provision to redeem us from our sin and to shower us with his mercy So whoever believes, whoever trusts, the invitation is for any and all, whoever believes and trusts and surrenders has this gift, this provision of God. And God wrote himself into our story that he would be the provision 
for us. And he now offers us another way through his death and his resurrection, reorienting our life. The invitation is to reorient your life on God. And it's in this rescue mission that he adopts us and gives us a new identity. Now there's no more condemnation for those that are in Christ. And that is a, an identity, a general identity to be a child of God. And on the contrary, is to be a child of wrath. And I know that offends. So maybe in part because we don't understand what wrath is. Wrath is God giving us over fully to what we already wanted and already desired. See, if you are a child of wrath, the invitation is for you to no longer be a child of wrath. You have chosen that you are smarter than God. You have chosen you are a better authority of your life than the creator and his provision that he's given to you. He's provided a provision, and a child of wrath would simply say, I don't want to trust in the provision that God has given to me. I'm going to provide my own. You've rejected God's kind design over your life. And God's response is simple. If that's what you want, that's what you get. If you want to be the king and ruler of your life, there are consequences and it leads to destruction. But if that's what you want, that's what you get. That is a a sign of passive wrath. God just simply giving you over to the desires and wants of your heart. Fully giving us over to our unabridged desires. Man, this week I was processing, I was out of town for a, a pastor's cohort that I'm a part of. And this phrase just was on my mind. Just where would I be without Jesus? I don't know if you've thought about that before. Like truly, where would I be without Jesus? Where would I be with unbridled desire? If the desires of my history and my past just went just full throttle, where would I be? I mean, disaster, devastation, destruction. And God in his mercy, he offers us a provision. So this is another way. And it's for any, and it's for all. See, Christ came to save us from this. He came to save us from the notion that we can be smarter than God. To save us from the notion that we are a better authority than him. And for some this morning, man, you might find yourself in that space. And the invitation is yours. You can turn and accept God's provision and reorient your life on God. That is available for you. I mean, this, this is such a critical, important understanding when we talk about identity. I wake up earlier than my family normally, and so sometimes I get dressed in the dark. Anybody? Yeah? Okay. So, uh, for example, this morning I'm wearing a button-down, and if it was in the dark, it's so important to get that first button right, because if you get the first button off, the shirt is like just janky right? It's just, if I showed up here and nobody, my wife didn't say, hey, by the way, buttons are off, and I showed up here, you'd be like, you wouldn't even be able to hear a word. It'd be like that wasp that one day, you remember? It'd be like, like, I can't even hear what you're saying because you're sure, you look like an idiot right now, right? So the first button is so important to get all the other buttons in order. And in the same way, when we talk about identity, it is critically important to understand this general identity, that the first uh, based foundational understanding of our identities that we are a child of wrath or we're a child of God. And again, the invitation is for us to all be children of God. That's the invitation for us this morning. So we have, we're human, we have a general identity, but then we also have a specific identity. This will only work for you, this specific identity, if you know your identity, if you know who God has made you to be, if you just stuff 
and grind. You just stuffed and grind all your life. You never take a step back and say, what are the key moments of my life that have shaped me to be the person that I am? If you just stuff and stuff and stuff, you'll, this will be a hard concept for you that you might have to take more time on. But you are a unique man. You are a unique woman with a unique background and backstory with unique gifts. So to be careful, I want to I be clear, clear on what I mean when I'm saying this and what I don't mean when I say this. What I mean when I say this, I'm re- referencing what St. Augustine said when he said, how can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? There's this need to know, knowing God, knowing self, they're important. I'm referencing what John Calvin said when he said, our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But as these are connected together by many ties, it is not easy to determine which of the two proceeds and gives birth to the other. I'm referencing what Pete Scazzaro says more recently when he said, the vast majority of us go to the graves, our graves without knowing who we are. Without being fully aware of it, we live someone else's life or at least someone else's expectations for us. As a result, we end up doing violence to ourselves, our relationship with God, and ultimately to others. See, so much of your calling, if we want to embrace our calling as a primary part of how we rule, your calling is about finding out who you are and what you can contribute to this world. So there's a a general call that we have in being called to rule. And the way that plays out practically is by us understanding how is God uniquely wired and uh, put you and formed you together. So your gifts, your past and your present, your passions, those are all the part of the tapestry of what God is doing and calling you into ruling in your life. How are you hardwired by your maker? And part of our job is to excavate and to discover this. I'm referring to this outdated yet stunning word called vocation. It comes from a Latin word and it means calling. See, your vocation is your calling. God creates some to be pastors and missionaries. Few in some ways, all things considered. And he calls most to be bankers and bakers and accountants and lawyers and teachers and stay-at-home moms. See, the secular work has no less dignity and nobility than the sacred work. So we're all called to something. You know, part of burnout, burnout's a common conversation today. Lots of talk about burnout Sometimes comes uh, when we think about burnout as like, I I work too hard in something. And sometimes burnout is because you're doing the wrong thing. And you're trying to put a square peg into a round hole. Specific calling is about unearthing and understanding how God has wired you to be. However, there's a secular understanding that I'm not referencing. A secular identity. I'll spend a few minutes here. So much of our cultural moment has been deeply influenced, whether we know it or not, by by secular philosophies and philosophers. There's a guy named uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He's an 18th century philosopher who shaped the Enlightenment and is shaping us whether we realize it or not. And he has two significant ideas that shape the secular identity. The first is this. Rousseau located our identity in the inner psychological life of the individual. That your identity is kind of found in what you feel. At the core of who you are, what you feel is what defines you. 
And then his second thought, Rousseau, concluded that there are governing structures, religion, family, society, that keeps us from being who this inner psychological life wants to become. Sound familiar? This is 18th century. Again, philosophers shaping what our cultural moment is, that there are structures that are keeping your inner being from being who it's supposed to be. Faith in God, uh, religion, other things that are keeping you from this. So the, the goal is to break th- free from this oppression so that you can, in return, live out your identity void of God. And that's the opposite of what I'm saying. See, the goal isn't to, uh, the goal here is to untangle yourself of all of this and live aligned with your feelings and your desires. And his summary thought is that man is born free, yet everywhere he is in chains. See, this is the essence of secular identity. Our final and and ultimate goal in life is to be freed from God so your inner self can thrive. And that leads to disaster. That leads to destruction. To try to remove God as the centerpiece of your life is a roadmap to destruction. See, we are not self-created. We are God-created. We are God-designed. And so we see in this identity that we are created as humans. We have a general identity, child of God, child of wrath. And we have a specific identity in that God, as the creator of all things, has formed you uniquely. And our goal isn't to remove God from our life, but make him central and allow him and his design to shape who we are. Which leads to my second point, which is this. You are the workmanship of God, and your unique identity is found in how he made you. I want to look at Psalm 139 with you this morning. You are the workmanship of God, and your unique identity is found in how he made you. Psalm 139, starting in verse 1, it says this. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So the psalm begins with this declaration. Oh, Lord, in past tense, you have searched me and you have known me. God is so familiar and aware of who we are. He then describes how deep this knowledge is. It's pretty intimate. He knows where I sit. He knows where I rise. He knows what I think. He knows where my feet are set. He's acquainted with all of my ways. He's aware of every word on my tongue. He surrounds me. He's in front of me. He's behind me. He surrounds me. And he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. That actual word is is too miraculous. That God would be so aware of all of these details. It's miraculous that God would know me so intimately. And then it goes on in verse 13. David writes this. He says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. 
intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And this passage is speaking to God's good design and how he's created us. This isn't denying biology. This isn't denying science. This isn't like the Bible thinks that God actually knitted us together. Like, we don't think he's some crochet artist. Like, we actually believe a sperm and an egg came together. But under that, God was purposeful. Meaning that there is no, you, your parents might have said, yeah, you know, your sister was a mistake, but you, is, you definitely were. You know, like, from, from a human perspective, and some of us have experienced this in having our own kids. Like, I didn't know that one was going to happen. But, but in it all, God knew. And God had purpose and care, intricate, well aware of such things. He speaks to our frame, that he wove us together. He's aware of how you are made up. He's aware of how he wired you. You know, for me, I've always been a relational connector since I was little. I've always desired to connect people together. It's just in my bones. I've always enjoyed laughter. I've always enjoyed helping people grow. That's just a part of who I am and how I'm wired. Each of you are different in that way. That you have a unique wiring that's just a part of your makeup. Like you look back since you were a child, since you were a young adult, this has just been a part of who you are. God intricately wove you together. It talks about your unformed substance. Some of us are just naturally fighters. Naturally, when fight or flight, you just, you buck up. Some of us are naturally passive. Some of it's nature, some of it's nurture, but nonetheless, some of us are naturally extroverts. You just receive energy from being around people. Some of you are naturally introverted. That you receive a source of uh, reset and strength from getting by yourself for a little bit. Some of you are naturally strategizers. Some of you are naturally executors. Some of you are naturally relationship builders. Some of you are naturally people who, who are influential. We're all wired in unique ways. Some of you are naturally thinkers. Some of you are naturally feelers. We've been put together uniquely by God. God has built your frame for the days he built for you. Something specific about you that makes you distinct. You came out of the womb in a certain way with certain passions and certain desires. You have an individual story that includes highs and includes lows. And often the, the man or the woman that you are is direct, directly uh, connected to the pain of your life. Oftentimes the, the hardship and the pain that we can stuff is designed to be a key ingredient in shaping who you are and who God is creating you to be. We know this, that Noah wasn't Esther, that Peter wasn't Paul, that Moses wasn't Mary, that we're, each person was unique in the Bible and to this day. So we have to get honest for a second that, that self-hate, comparison, these types of things can actually be accusations against God. When you compare yourself to the person that you wish you were, you say, I wish I was that. Instead of embracing who you are and who God's wired you to be, you can end up uh, bucking against the very one who created you. 
See, there are, these aren't accusations against you, but against God. And all of his design, what you're saying is that you know best. If I only had what this person had, I'd be different. If I had what this person had, my life would be better. It's this internal tape recorder. Man, there's, there's no one that has a louder voice in your life than you have in your life. And when our voice agrees with Satan and our comparison and self-hate over God, we're accusing God of who he's made us to be. And part of Jesus' invitation to you as a disciple is to break free from that self-hate and that comparison and actually embrace who God's called you to be. I'm not saying that just because you have certain wires doesn't mean that God wants to form and mature and grow you. But what I am saying is that God has wired you in a certain way. The psalm continues in Psalm 139. It says this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. What's interesting about this text is that it began in verse 1 where he says, O Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. So the question isn't if God knows you or not. What David's saying is, I want to know more about what you already know about me. The things that you wired and shaped and, and the way you created me, I want to know those areas more. Oh, search me and know me, oh God. Help me know what you already know. See, God is profoundly acquainted with his design, his unique wiring, and where he's placed you in human history. And our goal is to know him or to know what he knows about us. And if there's any grievous way in us, may I pray this prayer all the time, Lord, if there's any grievous way in me, If I'm going down a path, I'm just not aware of God. Would you show me and allow me to become aware of that? So you are the workmanship of God, and your unique identity is found in how he made you. How he knit the person next to you is different than how he made you. If you flip over to Ephesians chapter 2, I want to consider this as well. In the first two chapters, it's beautiful. We went through Ephesians last year. And then the first two chapters is a work of art about the salvation of God. Chapter 1 and chapter 2, seeing the work of God, the art that God is producing and how he's bringing about his salvation. So in chapter 1 and chapter 2, we see that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. We've been chosen and blameless and adopted and forgiven and sealed and rescued while dead in our sin. We've learned that God was rich in mercy and his great love that he's bestowed upon us. And then we read in Ephesians 2 verse 10, it says this, For we are his workmanship. Everybody say workmanship. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in this. We are his workmanship, created for good works, that God prepared beforehand so that we could walk in them. Workmanship, this same word is where we get the word poem. In other words, that, that he is the poet and he is writing a poem through your life. He is the poet. He is the one that's writing it. That's why the secular identity is farthest from how we see identity. This is why we understand, understanding who the author of our life is matters to our identity. We are not writing our own story. We are desperately trying to write our story today. And Satan in this world would like to add to that. But that's not true. God is writing our story created by a creator who is giving us an unshakable identity. So God prepared beforehand 
these things that we should walk in them. It jostles us from being a spectator. You weren't called to sit back. You weren't called to just coast. Whether you are just starting your career or you are retired and everywhere in between, that you are not called to coast, but you're called to ask the question, what am I supposed to walk in? What is God inviting me to walk into in this stage of my life? See, God made you. God made you. And you were God's workmanship. So some, yes, to work inside the church. But 98% of you to work outside the church for good works. To rule where he has set your feet. Redeeming our rule is about taking steps towards the sins. See, what I didn't say is to rule by embracing their call. What I am saying is embracing your call, who God has called you to be. So we can live wishing we had someone else's life, but you were never called to live their life. You have one life, and that life, your life, is the life you will be accountable to. I heard this story. Uh, It's a rabbi named Susai, and he said, at the end of your life, God will not ask you why you were not Moses. He will ask, why were you not you? Why did you try to live out someone else's life that was not your own? And he's created intentionally for good works, intentionally given you a unique identity unto an end of ruling, unto the end of serving the world in front of you. So I want to end with more of a practical question. How, How do we journey into this? How do we journey into this? I want to provide a a few curious questions that ought to be engaged, not just by yourself, but within community. The goal isn't just to become a version of yourself that you want to be, but actually allow others to speak into it. So I would encourage you to write these questions down. The first question is this. How are you wired? How has God wired you? And there's great resources, uh, whether it's StrengthsFinder or Myers-Briggs, that kind of helps kickstart some of this thought. Our leadership team, which would include our staff, our board, and our, our overseeing elders, uh, we met together a little over a month ago, and we, we sat down and we used StrengthsFinder, and we sat down and we um, spoke into each other in how we're wired. And what was beautiful about that, it wasn't just about somebody taking a test and kind of living in a silo, but actually allowing others who know you to speak into you and say, yeah, I see that. I see how that one makes sense. That, that one actually doesn't make as much sense what I know about you, but man, this one totally does. And how are you wired? Are you more extroverted or introverted? Do you allow how you see life through how you look in the past? Or do you allow how you see life and how you look into the future? Are you more of a thinker or more of a feeler? And God built you in this way that's beautiful. And you have to ask the question, how has he wired you? Second is, what are you passionate about? Like, what makes you sad? Like, what makes you happy? What energizes you? When you serve others, when you care for others, when you lead, what, is, what brings you to life? What are you passionate about? Do you like to speak in front of people? Do you like counseling people? Do you like numbers? Do you like networking? I heard uh, Jerry Bridges say, figure out what you love and then see if you can make a living at it. Figure out what you're passionate about. It's not always that ideal. It's not always going to work out that way, but it's important to ask that. What are some key themes? What are, what are that, that you see throughout your life where you're passionate? For me, I, when, I was called, when I was in seventh grade, I was at the summer camp that we go to with our students each year, and I felt like God called me to ministry. 
And man, over and over again, I would, I would go back to, I didn't know what that looked like. I was just seventh grade. But I, I felt a draw to serve in the local church. And I didn't know what that looked like. And over and over again, man, I, I tried to buck. And I wanted to be a, a, a commentator on ESPN. Like, I would try to buck hard against it. And I, I moved towards media communication. That was what my initial degree was going to be in. But God continued to move my heart back to, man, you're called to this. I tried to buck. But I ultimately submitted to him. I'm, the key theme of I, wanting to just lead people. I, I find it throughout my life. So what, is, what, do you, what brings you to life? Every one of us is different. There's no greater strength or less. We're all, we're all same dignity and we just have different gifts. We're all the body of Christ. I heard somebody say that, I don't remember what the quote, who quoted it, but it says, failure isn't always bad. Sometimes if we let it, it helps us get a clear sense of our calling. I mean, I've learned to befriend my own failures because in my failures, I've been able to see more clearly who God has called me to be. Next question is, does what you love help the world align with God's vision for it to be a renewed city? And is what you feel called to do help bring human flourishment in the world? Think beyond the sacred and secular. Man, most of you are going to be called to engage the world in a, in a way that's different than vocational ministry. But what does that look like? To help cultivate and keep and make this world a better place. Next question. Are there doors in your life that are opened? For you, if you're searching more intentionally in this season of your life, you can ask that question. Are, are things open for you? Are there times maybe for you that you need to be patient? What has God put before you and are you being obedient to that? Is there something that maybe God's breathing upon that you need to lean into and maybe you need to take a step of faith in? How is the Spirit leading you in faith to follow Him in ways that might even be uncomfortable? Listen for God's voice in that. I heard Parker Palmer say this about how we perceive these types of things. It says, the soul is like a wild animal, tough, resilient, savvy, self-sufficient, and yet exceedingly shy. If you want to see a wild animal, the last thing you should do is to go crashing through the woods, shouting for the creature to come out. But if we are willing to walk quietly into the woods and sit silently for an hour or two at the base of a tree, the creature we are waiting for may well emerge. And out of the corner of an eye, we will catch a glimpse of the precious wildness we seek. And in the same way, we have to be methodical and intentional and slow down. Like, what is God doing in my life in this season? Don't just coast until you die. I'm going to quote David Poizel twice this morning. Um, as being a former elder and a key part of this community, I, over and over again, he would say that he, and he's right here, so I'm, hey, buddy. Um, but over and over again, he, he has taken time. Oftentimes, it was annually where he would take a step back. Say, God, are you calling me to do anything different? Oftentimes, we just live our life until we die. But to be intentional, say, God, are you, is this what you're calling me to in this season? What, what, is there something different that you're inviting me into? It's not looking over our shoulder, trying to see, but just as we're walking through life, God, are you, is there something unique that you're inviting me into that maybe I need to, I need to pivot? Or, okay, stay the course. I want to stay the course. Stay the course. Stay the course. To see, just to offer that to the Lord and say, are you, are you saying something that might be different than what you've said in the past? A few more things. Um, we are individuals only, so what are people you know saying? I mean, invite people into your life. 
that are able to speak into you and speak into who God has called you to be, the wirings you have. It's so good to allow community to speak into your life. Don't, don't live in a silo. Don't live in isolation. You were never designed to live on your own. You are a part of a body, and we need to adhere to that. In, in abundance of counselors, there is safety. There's safety when people speak into you. Lastly, my friends who are nearing retirement age, how can you use your life to leave a legacy? Man, this is a sad reality. When people who spend the last 20 years of their life, after spending a life learning and growing and being challenged and forging through an unmet expectation and going through tragedy and hardship, not being willing to give that to the next generation. I mean, is there a greater tragedy than someone who lives their life sacrificing and serving and learning how to be faithful to a spouse, learning how to love kids that have wandered from the faith, learning how to do all kinds of things, and just holding it. What a tragedy. My friends, I've heard it said that sometimes it's your, your 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s that are the best years to invest. And I would encourage you to not put that under, under, under a basket. I would encourage you to figure out a way to invest in the younger men, to figure out a way to invest in the younger women, to figure out a way to invest and to leave a legacy that's bigger than you. You know, we're called to, um, to bear fruit and multiply. And this is a part of that, that in your latter years that you could bear fruit and multiply and leave a legacy. And you have experiences, you have pain, you have gifts, and just because you don't have a full-time job where you show up each day doesn't mean that God's not calling you to cultivate and keep in this season. But the culture mandate's still for you even in the season of your life. So how can you invest? Don't sit back. How can you leave a legacy? Again, I'll quote David Poizel again, that no matter what stage of life we are in, we need to seek God's assignment for us. So what does that look like for you? In this season of your life, what does that look like for you? My friends, you aren't here by accident. God has a beautiful plan for your life. And that, if you have questions about this, I'm just an email away. Feel free to read. I would love to sit with you and figure out what it looks like for you. Man, I, I want you to end your life leaving a legacy where we can hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the hope. Jesus is inviting us into a journey, saying, come and follow me, both with Jesus and with community. There's not a map. I mean, he's our guide, and we can submit to him. We're called to embrace our call, to redeem our role, and understand our identity. Amen? Let's pray.